ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good morning, it's Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group, and tomorrow is our seventh anniversary. I can't believe it, and we have got an amazing anniversary show for you. We're going to be talking about a very, very special book called The Conscience Economy, and I am so thrilled to have Stephen Overman as our guest this morning, and he is also the CMO of Kodak, a brand I know that is near and dear to many people's hearts and uh, was really a part of our growing up. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Chicky. It's great to be here. All right. Well, Stephen, why don't you start by giving us uh, really a little bit of your background personally. You know, we we all have uh, things that we identify with, you know, our business cards that have titles and company names that either are recognizable or not. Uh, you know, some people are fortunate enough to have a book that has, you know, really taken off like your conscience economy book. But who are who are you? And let, let's talk about the seeds of how this whole concept behind conscience economy evolved. Sure. Well, um, you know, I actually started my career in the art world and in the film industry. And um, it's interesting how one's life journey can, you know, take you full circle. If somebody had told me when I was a film student shooting Super 8 film and a 16 millimeter film and sending it off to be processed by Kodak in the labs, that one day I'd be responsible for um, reinvigorating the brand and for running the film business. I would have, uh, I would have thought they were crazy um, because my interest, um, you know, in my, in my early adulthood, my, my interest was in how creativity and storytelling could have the power to change the world. And, um, and as I moved through my career, and I've done a number of different things. I've worked in, uh, in advertising for a while. I've worked in corporate event production. Um, I've worked in innovation consulting. It, the, the theme throughout um, all of the professional experiences I've been lucky enough to have and all the mentors um, I've been lucky enough to know is that a really good idea delivered in a, in a moving story does have the power to change the world. And, and, the more I experienced this in action, the more I saw this happening in business, that um, so much of, of how uh, our culture um, uh, evolves is actually driven by innovation that happens in business. And, um, and so that ultimately led me to, um, to feel that it was possible, if I can use a kind of an odd word I don't think people use with business, I thought it might be possible to have a kind of, um, I would even say a, a a ministry or a vocation through business to uh, to try to make a, a real and meaningful difference in um, in how life unfolds on the planet for all of us. And, and I don't think anything is really more important than ensuring um, the sustainability and vitality of, of life on Earth. And, right. and I've always said, Chicky, that 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 which is valuable should be profitable and should be the source of business innovation. And and what could be more valuable today? Um, than ensuring a better, healthier life for all. And it, the wonderful thing is that more and more business leaders are are waking up to this and using it as the core of their business strategy. So in seeing this trend evolve as I moved from the arts and filmmaking uh, through marketing into business, I realized it was time to capture um, what I was observing around me in the culture and uh, turn it into a book. And that's where the conscious right. economy came from. Tell me a little bit, and, and this may, may seem a little bit out there, but tell me about growing up, because when you talk about conscience, and, you know, I'm the mother of a 15-year-old boy, and I also have a 17-year-old daughter, and raising him was so different, and uh, he happens to be um, uh, an adopted child. We adopted him when he was three from Russia. And, and you know, I look at this whole issue of conscience and I watch the behavior of my two children and, you know, again, raised in the same house. And the issue of conscience is kind of an everyday discussion with my son. Now, my, my daughter and I don't have to talk about it, but telling the truth and, and being straightforward in how you communicate, what role did your parents play in instilling that concept, or is this something that really evolved over your business life? 
Well, I, I'm really, I'm really fascinated with the word conscience, which is why I actually believe conscience is, is um, uh, going to be the driving force of the next economic paradigm. But if we go back to my childhood, I, mean, I was actually adopted as well, and um, and I suppose you know I've never, I haven't done a lot of self-analysis about uh, on this topic, but. Um, but my mother was a kindergarten teacher. Creativity and making things was was kind of embedded through, uh, throughout my childhood. And and I suppose you know the the notion of um, developing an inner sense of right and wrong uh, is, is something that I, I would hope all good parents um, embed in, in in their family life. But I found in my research about conscience that that that. Um, the development of that inner sense of right and wrong, which is what we call a conscience, requires two things in order to exist. So you're, you're not actually born with a conscience, sort of like we're not born speaking a language. It's something we, something we learn and develop. And the two requirements for conscience to exist are um, a, a felt sense of interdependence. In other words, your actions affect my well-being, my actions affect your well-being. And I, I not only know that, but I feel it and experience it. So that, that's one requirement, interdependence. And the other is open communication. So when the consequences of my actions have affected you in one way, you're able to tell me about it and, and vice versa. And so, you know, in, in, in healthy relationships, healthy communities, classrooms, families, etc., um, these two things are in place and, and conscience forms at least a sense of what is right and wrong for that group in your family, in your community. What's interesting about what the internet has done uh, in terms of uh, global interconnectedness is it's given more and more of the planet these two conditions, these two preconditions for conscience. So in a sense, what is happening in your family with your son, uh, between you and your son, the same thing is happening on a global scale. And, uh, and, and again, I think that is a fascinating um, shift. We are all more intimately connected than ever before, just as you and your son uh, have an intimate connection. Right. Well, I, I think it's interesting. You, and you start the book talking about from conscious to conscience. And, again, I, you know, I, I look at it from the personal perspective and, and also from the business perspective, and that's one of the you know kind of unique things about the Executive Girlfriends Group, unlike other uh, women's networking organizations who only focus on you know kind of the business tactics and, and strategies. We we look at us as whole beings, right? And if we're having a bad day, you know, with our husband or our child, or you know, our work is particularly challenging, you know, it can spill over into relationships with customers and and how we communicate. And, you know, I, I think that the interesting thing is I, I think that I see business being a lot more conscious of what's going on around them. And they've been trained to do market research and competitive research and, you know, to learn about the personas of the customers. But to be able to carry out the, uh, you know, the resulting actions with true conscience and and really having that embedded uh, ethical base, uh, you know, I think it's something you would think it would just be intuitive. Like you said, we're, we're not born to have that. We have to develop it. And companies have to have leadership that lays that out, you know, that walks, talk. Um, and we have to have people at the bottom who, who realize that, you know, their own personal ethics have to be carried out in their relationships with customers and, and uh, you know, in how they portray the brand. Sure. Well, I love that you're 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 kind of calling out there were two things I love about what you just said. One is um, the idea of the whole self and the whole being, bringing that to work, and even in in some ways, bringing things that we learn at work because work incentivizes us to collaborate. For example, bringing some of those learnings back into our personal life. So I think that that whole being idea, I have to confess, I love it, and I, I do try to um, embed it in in my own um, leadership and collaboration style. Um, but also this this um, this notion of the transition from conscious to conscience is something uh, I tend to bang on about you know at dinner parties because conscious conscious is the the notion of being awake and aware and it is certainly an important step it's an important step um, you know in human development too 
But then what do you do with that awareness? And that's when it becomes conscience. That's when it becomes a decision to act in a, in a certain way. It is not mere awareness. Conscience drives action. And, and so I'm on a bit of a mission um, to, to, to uh, create more conversations around the notion of conscientious behavior, um, doing things with a conscience. And I, I think um, what's encouraging is that, um, is that business is starting to do it. You see, for example, Unilever has recently articulated um, an entire strategy company-wide that is about making sustainable living um, uh, an everyday thing for people everywhere. Right. And, of course, as a huge packaged goods company, they're in a position to do that. And so, the, so then one could wonder, why? Is it just because it's a nice thing to do? And I love that you're talking about parenting because you know, um, as a parent, that people will do and children will do what they're rewarded for doing. And so <laughs> businesses. So businesses are like kids in a way. Yeah, they'll do what they're rewarded for doing. And I talk about this a bit in the book that that for you know for eons, business was often rewarded for doing that which was not good for people, right. society, communities, individuals, the planet. But as consumers become more and more empowered, um, it's it simply businesses that do act with a conscience are rewarded for their actions and the movement starts to spread. Right, right. And, you know, I think that that, you, you bring up a point of people doing things for the right reasons. And, you know, we certainly see companies who tick off the sustainability box, right, or right. that they are giving back. Uh, and later on, we're going to talk about the culture of conscience. But before we get to that, um, your second chapter is about the big wake-up call. And, you know, I have watched different clients of mine over the last 20 years have that moment where they realize they can't keep doing things the way they've been doing it. And whether it's just status quo product, um, you know, or the way that they're talking to their customers and their, their vendors, um, you know, any number of things. So what is the big wake-up call that you think needs to happen to get us to that conscious economy? If I were going to put it really simply, the big wake-up call is each of us has more power than we think. And our power is multiplied um, not only through our own actions and, and personal interrelationships, but it's particularly multiplied and, and amplified uh, through what we do at work and the companies that we work for. Because companies, businesses, which, which are arguably the most powerful entities on earth, um, are comprised of people and their actions collectively and individually. That ultimately, I believe, is what's going to drive the conscience economy. We've had a wake-up call. We increasingly see the impact of our actions on, um, on the environment and on each other. Um, human rights continues to spread across the world. Yes, there are many parts of the world where life is more difficult than it's ever been. I want to be sensitive to that fact. And yet, in aggregate, more people in more places are living better, longer, healthier lives than ever before. And that's encouraging good news. There's plenty of reason for optimism. As we, as individuals and as organizations, realize that good actions are rewarded, as I said before, the, the movement starts to spread and it becomes a basis for business innovation. And we can, we can imagine and see right in front of us all sorts of examples uh, of that. And you know, this did not happen overnight. Um, this has been, um, I, I posit, it's been a 40-year process. And it, it, I mentioned this in the book, that it tends to take about 40 years consistently. This is what's interesting about this, um, this notion uh, of the 40-year uh, uh, kind of time that it takes for an idea or a trend to really become embedded in mainstream culture. The pace of technological change has not uh, shortened that. That's just about the amount of time it takes. It really is the same amount of time it takes for a human being from infancy to prime. And so right. what we're seeing happening now all around us, whether it's in third-way coffee shops or uh, the visibility of the environmentally friendly movement, uh, organic food on our supermarket shelves, this really began 40 years ago. So, you know, as we take a look at that, and, and I think that that's interesting about the evolution of the culture, you know, taking the time it takes to get us to maturity. So what, what we're really talking about 
that is that a mature company, a mature industry, uh, should have evolved to this. I mean, this should have been the natural outcome. But we know uh, that it has to start uh, with, with a seed. And, you know, that seed can begin at the bottom where you've got, uh, you know, your frontline staff pushing that culture of conscience up. That, that sometimes is like pushing a snowball uphill. Or you can have a leadership team or a board that really is demanding a shift. And, and I think, because I'm an expert on, on business models and how business models impact behavior, right, in the new company that I'm starting, we, we have a goal, a very, very big uh, audacious goal, not, not hairy, by the way, but uh, of being a billion-dollar company. And what that means for us, we know how many bookings we need to do in the travel space to equate to that. But one of the things we've built into our culture, actually there are two unique things that I think speak to this culture of conscience, is on every single transaction, we're giving 10% of our gross revenues to the charity of choice of our client because we're a B2B uh, provider. And, and so my goal isn't necessarily just being a billion-dollar company. It's contributing $100 million to changing the world, right, one trip at a time. And, and if I don't bake that in to what we're doing, yet I talk about giving back, uh, my team isn't going to believe me. Right, it, it isn't. It right. isn't viable. Right. And that's right. You know, one one is a set of words that come out of my mouth that shows that I'm conscious of the importance of giving back and sustainability and whatever that translates into with whatever uh, charitable functions my clients want to support. But it doesn't speak to the conscience of my company. And the other thing is is I believe that innovation is also an, a critical part of sustainability. And I, I know that you're living that out in, in transforming Kodak uh, and taking a venerable brand that, you know, we all know from childhood and really making it relevant to us today. And, you know, so we're putting an equal 10% aside of every dollar that we earn into an innovation fund that we can either, you know, invest back into our company, invest into other companies, or, you know, acquire companies if that if that is the case, or just to become a great little incubator for other other entrepreneurial ventures. And and so those actions of baking in things that support what we believe, I think is the foundation of that culture of conscience. But I, I wanna shift to, to the next topic of your book, uh, which I I know that you're going to pull conscience through all of this, so I don't have to connect the dots. But the next one is the cult of brand belief. And and because of your role at Kodak and, and what you're having to do to make that brand relevant, um, I'm, I'm very curious to hear how the board is supporting you in uh, the delivery of this book. And I know you do a lot of public speaking about this. How does your day job and and this passion and this ministry that you describe of helping other people get this fire, how does that fit together? Well, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> and I, the first thing, <laughs> it is. I, the so first thing show I'll, will end yeah, tomorrow and, at five. I'll, a, <laughs> I'll do my best to give a big answer. So so the the, the first thing I, um, I must say is that um, uh, being one of the people responsible for the Kodak brand at this moment in time is very humbling and, and a huge honor because um, Kodak, like a handful of iconic brands, um, really belongs to everyone. Uh, I, I imagine all of the wedding albums and graduation photos and baby photos and memories and I gotta say it, Kodak moments um, that that enable people all over the world to to relive. Um, both the everyday and the really significant um, uh, moments of their lives um, kind of captured in images so that we, we can kind of re-experience them, re-experience them and, and share them with other people. It, it, it's, there aren't many brands that have that kind of reach and, and the kind of deep associations that, that frankly research I've just commissioned shows me Kodak continues to have um, in countries around the world. That said, um, the, the task of ensuring that all the love and nostalgia and trust that Kodak still engenders in people is, is then fueling um, 
new innovation that that ensures the codec is relevant in people's lives and that people's lives are enhanced by it. I mean, that is a that's a it's a humbling task and, a, and an exciting task. And um, when I think about the conscience economy and being a conscientious brand and driving innovation and doing things for communities, two things come to, come to mind vis-a-vis Kodak specifically. One is that the the founder George Eastman was arguably um, a, an innov- a true innovator in in terms of kind of imagining uh, the future role of business in society beyond beyond delivering products that make money. And of course, for many many years, Kodak was um, one of the most important, if not the most important, American technology companies. Um, and but even in the early days of the company, Eastman was doing things for community. So he he um, uh, was one of the the first, if not the first. Um, uh, a business entrepreneur and, and highly visible executives to fund um, education for African Americans, higher education for African Americans. He um, he was deeply committed to the arts. He endowed um, Eastman School of Music, which is one of the the top if, if the top music school in the country today. Um, so so we're really inspired by that because we see a synergy between his um, technological innovation his understanding of how to create a brand and he created the Kodak brand. He invented the word. He came up with the trade dress colors himself. He was a deep believer in advertising. He advertised heavily to women. Uh, He invented this notion of the Kodak girl because he really understood that, um, that women drive purchase decisions. There's so much I could say about, about um, George Eastman as our founder today. One of the areas in which, in which that, that um, notion of, of um, operating a business in concert with the best interests of society and the planet is a, is a product that we have called Sonora. And Sonora um, are printing plates that actually use very little water and almost no chemistry. They are, in fact, the most sustainable printing solution in their category. And this is really significant when you look at what's happening in places like California, for example, um, which have serious water issues, which don't sound like they're going to go away very soon. And um, and so so, um, looking at at problems like future water shortages has forced us, and I use that in a, in a positive sense. It's it's inspired us, be another way to put it, to innovate. Um, and you can see this in the automotive category, in 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 energy, um, conscientious behavior can fuel innovation that ultimately results in a new kind of differentiated solution, which is great for business. And so you get this virtuous circle. In terms of brand, one more thing I want to say about, about brand and why I use a kind of loaded word in that chapter, cult. When we buy a brand, we're not just buying a product. We're, we're joining a community. And that is more true today than ever before. Brands have always been shorthands for quality, for certain product categories. Right. And a brand right and a brand enables a product um, to stand out ideally. Well what makes you stand out today? It's not just your product features. In fact often um, as 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 feature sets become uh, uh, commoditized, a brand represents a value system. Right. And and so when we we buy brands, particularly brands we're seen with, we're actually buying into and joining a value system that represents and mirrors mm-hmm. something we believe to be true ourselves, which is why in the conscience economy, those brands that actively, visibly stand for things that are meaningful to people will be those brands that will thrive. And I think this is part of why you're making the decisions, Chicky, I would guess, that you're making around being right. a conscientious company yourself. It's because right. it's more you know, meaningful. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. And um, I think the interesting thing, and, and you and I have a connection, uh, you know, with Jeff Clark, who came. Well, he he came through a lot of different industries, but he he had a a stop right before Kodak uh, in the travel industry and travel technology, which is a highly commoditized um, world, right? And with very very little differentiation between brands. And so, you know, I I look at that as as really fortuitous. For him then to march into this role in a company that cares cares deeply about people and and is dealing 
both in the business-to-business use of the brand in Hollywood, as an example, you know, in the film industry, and and also, you know, the these products that have been business-to-consumer, you know, for many, many decades. And, you know, it, it must be interesting to watch the transformation, you know, in someone like Jeff, who has been given this incredible gift. And I love what you say about the Kodak brand, that it really belongs to all of us, because I think it's it's one of the few brands that all of us do relate to, uh, you know, with with a very, very deep uh, connection. Uh, you talk about cult, though, and I'm, I'm part of the Apple cult and have been part of the Apple cult since – uh, 1984, when I was uh, invited by my boyfriend uh, at the time uh, to spend Thanksgiving with his family uh, in in uh, Silicon Valley, and I didn't understand at the time. I, in fact, I'm not even sure I knew who Apple was at that point. But I uh, had to sign an NDA to sleep in this bedroom because Lisa, you know, the the prototype <laughs> that's now the Macintosh, was on the floor, right? So this I is an excellent story. <laughs> I got to sleep with Lisa, right? And uh, but anyway, I became one of the uh, the evangelists because that's what their customers were. Even then, I had the first uh, Macintosh at American Airlines uh, when I was with the Sabre division, and you know, virtually owned every product. And my kids, you know, said, "Hey, look at this new Samsung phone." It's like I. I can't, you know, it would, it would actually feel like cheating on Apple, right? And how many brands get to enjoy that kind of thing? And, you know, of course, Apple has to live up to, you know, product excellence and, and, and that culture of conscience that we want to see. And, and, you know, the leadership there doesn't always believe what I believe, but, uh, you know, some of the other things override that. So I want to move on um, to in the next couple of chapters because I'm, I'm really intrigued by this next one. Uh, you talk about the death of CSR. First of all, for our listeners who don't know what CSR is, why don't you give us that snapshot? Sure. CSR is an acronym, uh, like so many in corporate life, it's an acronym that stands for Corporate Social Responsibility. And around the mid-80s, it became a field. It became the notion um, that, for example, Kodak's founder, George Eastman, believed in, which is that business had an obligation to society. And by the way, with an exception of the era between the Civil War and the Great Depression, this was not the dominant belief in business, that business had a social responsibility. Um, and actually due to the Great Depression and then the, um, uh, and, 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 um, the need to rebuild Europe after World War II, the idea that business had a, had a broader role to play in society beyond purely delivering shareholder value um, actually became quite dominant among, among most business people. And I um, – I offer um, a, a quote that when I found it, a quote from Fortune magazine, I found really surprising um, from, uh, from 1946, uh, a survey that they did that, that um, basically said the majority of business people um, felt that, that business did have this, this, this kind of broader obligation to society and the planet. That's a, so it's not a new idea, is I guess what I'm trying to say. But around the 80s, 1980s, it became professionalized, and companies started building CSR departments, which were right. like the human resources department or like the marketing department or the sales department. It was a department whose job it was to make sure that the corporation was acting in society's and the planet's best interest. And this is a wonderful development because it, it meant that there was a place at the table for talking about these issues. But like any functionalized, um, professionalized department, at a certain point, it starts serving its own interests, and and, right. and also can become it can become siloed. And so I I, I want to be really clear: people who are experts in corporate social responsibility have a huge role to play in the future. And I say this in the book that that they need to be the CEOs and the CFOs uh, of the future um, because they need to get out of their department so that they can really embed. Um, what they know about the impact that corporate life has on communities, society, individuals, and, and the environment, and make sure that's really embedded in day-to-day operations and policies. Right. Um, and so, so uh, the, the death of CSR is an intentionally provocative call to action 
to dismantle or at least to break down the walls between this this function and the way the rest of the organization operates. And the reason is people have, in the past, I would even say 10 years, the professionalization of this discipline on one hand has led to some highly qualified leaders. Um, on the other hand, it's also led to some cynicism. So you get terms uh, that, that some of your listeners may be familiar with, like greenwashing, where I'm going right. to say I do these good things so that you're not really paying attention to all these other things that I'm doing. Or I'm going to donate some money to charity to kind of as almost a marketing initiative when in, when in fact there are all these other things that my business is doing that are actually net-net causing more harm than good. So I'm right. a huge fan of the expertise and, and the call to action is for those experts and leaders and visionaries to be running businesses themselves. Well, I love that. <clears throat> and we have just finished a series on, um, you know, women in the boardroom and and what the path is, you know, for women to actually get on corporate boards. And, you know, I, I find it fascinating that you talk about someone going from being the leader of corporate social responsibility to being a CEO uh, or, or at the very least, a COO who is who is actually taking things into the day to day. But I think you know that that move also from that role onto corporate boards would also be a very very interesting one. And I, I know that those individuals quite often will go to nonprofit boards, but I think the real change will come when that expertise is baked in you know, to how companies operate. And as I was growing up in the travel industry, and I've been in the industry for 34 years now, um, all of the people who ended up being CEOs came out of finance, right? And and that caused that over-focus on profitability to the exclusion of everything else, right? And so I think the transition that we'll see, if your prediction is right, that that is the right next move, uh, for those individuals will be really interesting. But I want to move to the next chapter because this one, uh, you know, from a CMO of a major company, uh, you are now also predicting the death of marketing. So uh, this one I find even more pro- provocative. Well, it, I, 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 so I should say something about, about the book and actually about, about my boss, Jeff Clark. Um, uh, he, among other things, is a proper economist and I, I, um, sent him a manuscript of the book and said, just, you know, want to get, get your thoughts as a business leader and a, and a real economic thinker. And Jeff did come up through uh, the role of finance and has always operated with a view towards what I refer to as, as the conscience economy. And, um, and he, he said, after he read this, I had titled all the chapters and I had retitled CMO to mean chief matchmaking officer. He said, I want you to come do this at Kodak, and that's in fact how I how I ended up there. So when you see my bio, oh, it doesn't mention that I'm at Kodak. Yeah, that's how it happened. So he said, let's make this the playbook for how we how we um, how we uh, uh, deliver a Kodak comeback. Um, oh, I love that. Mark, well, mar- so marketing is is um, you know sort of a big word, and I think it's often misunderstood. And as as a first of all, as a function, and um, uh, Peter Drucker said years ago, actually, marketing isn't just a function, it's a source of value creation. Arguably, it's one of the only sources of value creation in the organization. So um, I, I think marketing is loaded with uh, preconceptions about outbound advertising, about sales promotion, all these things that are good things, essential things for a company to do. But in a world where we are all interconnected, Actually, not everyone on the planet, I should be clear, not everyone on the planet is interconnected, but those of us who are, um, are empowered to interact with, with all sorts of institutions, whether it's uh, educational institutions, governments, and indeed businesses, in a way we weren't able to before. It really changes the rules of marketing so dramatically that what um, somebody with a title like mine, CMO, now needs to do is, it's just so different from what it was even five years ago, that it's time to rewrite the entire role. And so what we thought of as marketing is, in fact, dying really quickly. And yet the importance of making that connection with a customer, with potential employees, with current employees, tasks that fell into into the the marketing function um, now need to be executed in such a different way that it's worth 
potentially thinking about different nomenclature. And so I love the concept of matchmaking and try to deploy it every day because it reminds us that what we're doing, those of us who are tasked with identifying new sources of value for the business, finding customers and serving them, making the brand meaningful so it attracts people who will also grow its value, whether they're buying something, partnering with you, joining you, advocating for you. And that is a very different role than, say, creating advertising or delivering outbound messages. Data becomes more important than ever before. Um, People who are called marketers, and I actually don't expect the term to go away. Again, it's a provocation in in the book. and hopefully get some people's attention. Um, but the the, um, the the person tasked with marketing is, is now the biggest vendor on technology. Why? Because data analytics make it um, easier for us to actually properly match make in real time. Um, and right. so everything begins. To, I suppose, actually, the, the number one change that we're living through now, and we're well into it, we're not on the cusp of this, we're, we're well into this, is that brands are no longer managed by companies. Brand reputation lives in the hearts and minds and actions and communications of, of customers, of right, real people, right. of citizens. And that's really different from the command and control model that most of us who are now senior marketers were taught to, to deliver. We have to create entirely new rules and learn everything over again. And again, that, that is, is quite humbling also. So that's what I try to, to lay out in, in that chapter, another call to action. Right. And and so your next chapter is about collective innovation. And I think, again, it's interesting looking back, you know, those of us who have been in business, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, um, innovation used to be the role of just a few players, you know, uh, technology companies, et cetera. But, but now innovation is is really an imperative, right? And that innovation, again, has to be seen through the lens of this culture of conscience. So talk to us about collective innovation and, and who is it that we are collaborating with and, and how has that changed even just in the last 10 years for you? These are great questions. I love these questions because um, the, 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 the kind of high-level answer to that is, Collective innovation matters because a good idea can come from anywhere. And now that we have the tools to, to, to contact people all over the world, we don't really necessarily need to recruit focus groups anymore. We don't need to lock people uh, away in an innovation studio anymore. Those things have their place, it's true. But we can tap into, um, we can tap into people everywhere and anywhere to come up with ideas, understand their needs, put a problem out into the world and have a group collectively solve it. We can take any kind of innovation task and break it down into little tasks that different people can contribute a part of the solution to. Collaboration between a diverse group of people has always been um, kind of core to innovation, even when it was happening within a specific group. Well, now we can foster collaboration um, across broad groups of people and crowdsource great ideas. So I've seen this um, be really effective uh, both in, in, in terms of creating marketing materials where um, we, a, a team and I, um, have, have collected or I can almost say harvested and curated uh, real-life imagery from around the world and use that imagery in, in campaigns. But we've also used that imagery to understand um, what's going on in people's lives and what's meaningful to them because what they're taking pictures of. So collective right. innovation can, can, can frankly help any department. You can now, even within the enterprise, crowdsource ideas. And the thing is, if you don't, because a new generation of worker expects to be asked, they feel empowered, they've grown up with the empowerment of, of connectivity. Um, it's not just that it's great to do it, but if we don't do it, people feel disenfranchised. So it's exactly. Become, uh, well, that's more why I think, you know, it really is innovation as an imperative, yes. right, yes. Uh, to true sustainability of business because we used to be able to design something, put it out, you know, the, the build it and they will come mentality. And then we would go out and measure 
the reaction of people to it. And, you know, when, when you right. think about it, it's so silly, uh, particularly now, for a company to still be living in that world when we have so many tools available to us. So I want to shift gears a little bit uh, because with any responsibility, right, and conscience becomes a responsibility for us as we become a part of this conscience economy, there is always accountability. So what does the new accountability look like, Stephen? Well, that which gets measured is that which gets done. And so <laughs> in, in, right, and in the conscience One of my favorite economy, quotes. Well, and it's, there, and it's absolutely true. And so, um, so there, it is actually possible to measure impact using, um, using some of the tools you were just referring to, uh, tools that allow us to, to reach people across the enterprise or allow us to interact with consumers. Measurement no longer has to be something that happens at the end of a process. It's kind of about tracking while you're going through a process. So, um, so the new accountability is really about coming up with a new dashboard um, for understanding not only the profitability of a particular um, of, of, of a particular offering, but also the impact of that offering, which does actually show up in other costs on the balance sheet. So, uh, for example, I'll, I'll use a, a somewhat of a dumbed down but not inaccurate example. If a, if a company is manufacturing something in a way that makes the community where it's built its factory unhealthy, it's inhibiting future workers. So it, um, it, it's actually... In, a, in an organization's best interest to to be tracking and monitoring not only uh, uh, pure profit today but impact because impact right. does show up in a number of things like lawsuits for example or mm -hmm. the requirement of cleaning up that resource which the business is using business ultimately is uh, the transformation of people's energy and natural resources into something valuable Mm -hmm. You really distill it down. That's what all business does. And so we need natural resources and we need people and their energy and their health, not only to work, work with us, but also to, to partner with us and to buy from us. And so right. um, the new accountability is about tracking impact. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because what we've been talking about in my company is actually creating a new kind of a balance sheet, right? Because sure. if, if we look at, at uh, giving through our clients over $100 million to charity, you know, in the next three years, um, we want to know from those people what that money is being used for. So we'd like to have a balance sheet that says we've saved X number of children from hu human slavery. We've built X number of wells in in uh, you know war torn areas and and to be able to show that as the balance sheet and I, I think uh, you know then you have to show the other side of that equation right as you say lawsuits and, and things that detract from that but if you measure and reward those things um, then the company does get transformed and and you can't just keep use I mean you must use all the old financial measures and I love how you describe uh, you know Jeff's role and. Uh, rather than just being a finance guy, which he clearly is. I mean, he knows his numbers cold, but he is an economist, which is, you know, the ability to put all these pieces together and to understand that this new balance sheet is every bit as important as the old balance sheet. It doesn't replace it, but it, it really demonstrates that you have moved into the conscience economy as opposed to just being conscious well, of what and, it and to get it, things done. That's right. I want to build off that because it also gives you more predictability. It, yeah. it, 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 it de-risks you. It allows your forecast to be more accurate because um, one thing leads to another. Everything is interconnected. You create environmental damage. You actually have, you are accountable for it and you have to pay to clean it up. And so uh, measuring impact enables you to forecast more accurately and, and to de-risk or, or, or rather like inhibit the possibility that, that things are going to go wrong down the road. Right, the other right. thing that you're doing, when, so when you talk about your business, Chicky, and, and, and what you want to be able to, to, 
to do to impact communities um, around the world is you're doing economic development, which means you're creating a new generation of customers, workers, et cetera, and it becomes what I like to refer to as an upward spiral. And again, because yeah. that which gets measured is that which gets done, when we track impact on communities, on individuals, on health and well-being, and on the environment, we, ha- we get a much more accurate picture of our business operations and we can optimize and ultimately not only save money, but economically develop and then open up new markets. That's one of, right. one of the reasons I, I, I talk a bit about Africa at the end of the book is that um, it sometimes seems like there are inter- insurmountable challenges in, in parts of the world. And yet we lean into those challenges as individuals, as society and as businesses. And we actually not only make life better for people, but when their life is better, they actually contribute to the global economy. And, and it's again, a virtuous circle. Well, they do. And you know, one of my favorite uh, charities is actually Kiva. And uh, last year I gave my kids each a, a block of money to invest in, you know, a business on Kiva. And my son is hugely passionate about, uh, fishing and his moniker on social media is Fisher Beast. And so of course he wanted to invest in in a an individual who had a fishing business and I think it was in Ethiopia. Right. And so now he sees that person actually paying that loan back. That's and fantastic. now he can roll the money that they paid back. I mean we're talking about a you know a fifty dollar loan. This isn't, you know, huge amounts of money, but that this whole microfinance economy that has been made possible by people like Kiva and there are many others just like that. Um, But, you know, as we circle back to talk about uh, parenting and how we instill this in this generation so that they just grow up thinking that that's the way it's done, right? And you do get to see the outcome, um, you know, of of what you choose to spend your time and your talent and your treasure on, you know, which is what we talk about a lot. So talk to me about this last chapter. You know, again, this is a a bit provocative. What you see is what you get. And, And we've talked about having to, you know, walk uh, your talk and, and to really be doing, living the culture of conscience within your companies, your organizations, even your nonprofits, right? Sure. Well, the reason I called it what you see is what you get is I think our actions are, are shaped by our perception of the world. People are either optimists or pessimists. And there's a whole media industry called the news that, um, <laughs> rooted in a business model that keeps you watching and I would even say keeps you addicted to seeing it. And most of the news is bad news because it triggers adrenaline and you got to see what happens next. And so the news industry is designed to make us pessimists and make us feel anxious. But in fact, there are plenty of reasons to feel optimistic. And I love your story about your son's investment in in a fishing company because he, this will help shape his own optimism and sense of empowerment that he can contribute in a, in a meaningful way to, to making life better for somebody else through, through business. Um, it really starts with our point of view. If we believe as business people, as citizens, as men and women, that it is possible to make the world better tomorrow than it is today, we'll start doing it. We'll actually act. It's really that simple. Um, and at the same time, that complicated because what we're up against is a, is a lot of bad news that, as I said before, is designed um, to keep us intrigued. It kind of entertains us because it's dramatic. And um, I've often thought maybe we should create a good news channel, but I don't know if anybody would watch it because although good news <laughs> feels good. Yeah, we call that puppies and kittens. Puppies and kittens, exactly. and it's uh, exactly. the puppies and kittens industry that has emerged on YouTube. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But it's so important to see where you're going in order to, it's just like companies need a vision and a strategy in order to align people and move them forward. Um, in the conscience economy, it's going to happen when we, when we all see that it's possible to happen. And increasingly, people are seeing that it can happen. So your son is seeing it through his micro-investment, for example. So that's ultimately what it's really all about. And at the end of the day, do we have a choice? I mean, what is the world that we want to live in, that we want our children and our grandchildren to live in? Um, and so I do offer in the book a, a scenario of what that world m- might look like, um, just to get people thinking, well, what's the vision of the world you'd like to live in? And then how can you act, given the tools that I lay out in the book, in order to, to 
how can you act every day at work? What decisions can you drive at work that, that enable your company to be part of this, this mass movement for good? Right, right. So, Stephen, I, I so appreciate you taking this time. And uh, you, you have a day job, clearly, uh, a very big day job. Uh, but you also are on the speaker circuit. You're available, uh, I think, through a number of channels. I know BiblioMotion is, is one of them uh, that you use to, to locate speaking engagement. So if someone wants to contact you, how, is, how are they best able to plug into you? And how can they find your social media links? Because um, our, our listeners generally would like to have a way to, to plug into you directly. Sure. So um, three ways I'd recommend. Um, love to have people follow me on Twitter, where I am Stephen Overman, my imaginative, my imaginatively named Twitter handle. I'm Stephen Overman. I have a website, stephenoverman.com. And I'd love people to reach out to me at Kodak as well. You know, I, like I said, I, I, I am humbled to be stewarding a brand that really belongs to everyone. And so I'd love to hear at my Kodak email address, uh, what people's thoughts are. And that is stephen.overman at kodak.com. And as you said, yes, I do have a day job, but part of my day job is um, spreading the word, not only about about the company I work for, but about the conscience economy. There's nothing I love more than uh, getting to know people. So I'd love to hear from folks. So if you have to leave us with one thought, uh, one thing that you can change your behavior, change your thinking, and start looking at how you can profit from good, what would that be? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot uh, now. Well, <laughs> now our listeners know I don't give you questions in advance because I think I'm up on the spot. <laughs> I would say there are so many reasons to be optimistic. There is power within you. Given that most of your listeners are women. I would say women have a particular amount of power within them. We can have a whole conversation about that. And, and if you believe it's possible, you can make it possible every single day through what you do. Well, and I, I love the quote. Uh, I, I don't know whether this was from your book or, or where it was from, but making life better for everyone is more than meaningful work. It's the most valuable thing humans can do. We believe that what's valuable should be profitable. We're on a mission to help people transform themselves, brands, businesses, and our planet for good. And I, I think on that note, we will we will close out the interview. It has just been delightful to get to know you, Stephen. I know we, we had you scheduled uh, earlier in the spring and had to reschedule you, but uh, I am so glad that we finally got together. And I'll definitely be in touch after we hear uh, Kodak's upcoming news, which you said uh, should be out in the next week to 10 days. And uh, you just have a superb weekend and uh, keep doing good. Oh, thanks, Chickie. It's been a pleasure for me, too. And thanks to all your listeners. Well, terrific. And for those who'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, we're in the process of launching a, a new website and uh, a new way to access our content. So if you would like to know more, go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, and we will plug you into the, the new capabilities when we have them. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a terrific weekend. God bless. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.